Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, in the immediate wake of the September 11, 2001 attacks, a military official told the Washington Post of the newly minted War on Terror, quote, This is the most information-intensive war you can imagine. We're going to lie about things, close quote. If reporters don't evidence skepticism after a declaration like that, it says more about them than anyone or anything else. But U.S. elite news media did the opposite of what you would hope for from an independent press corps in a country launching an illegal and baseless invasion whose leaders had announced in advance that they would lie to support it. You can dig out the reality if you read, but if you just rely on the same news media you were looking at in 2003, take two, you were looking at in 2003, you'll be equally misled and in the same, frankly, boring ways you were before. The U.S. is good and only wants democracy. Other countries are bad, and if our reasons for invading them and replacing their leadership with people we like better and killing anyone that doesn't agree with that don't add up, well, we'll come up with different reasons later and you'll swallow those too. What passes for debate about why we must remain at some kind of war, cold, hot, corporate, stealth, acknowledged, denied, with Russia or China or whomever else is designated tomorrow, well, that has some roots worth studying in 2003. We'll talk with author, critic, and longtime friend of FAIR, Norman Solomon. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, but first, very quickly, listeners will know that Gigi Sohn withdrew her nomination to fill the crucial fifth seat at the FCC in the wake of an absurd homophobic smear campaign from the telecom industry that she would have had a say in regulating and a pathetic lack of pushback from Democrats and purported allies. As Evan Greer wrote for FAIR.org, we can be sure that lobbyists for the likes of Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T are already circulating their lists of approved candidates to fill that slot. And given what's happened, we have reason to be worried that Biden could take one of those names. This is about net neutrality the immensely popular plan to keep Internet service providers from blocking apps, throttling or charging scammy fees. It's about the digital divide or whether it's okay that some kids need to sit outside Taco Bell to use the Wi-Fi to go to school on Zoom. And it's about cracking down on cell phone carriers, shady data collection practices, along with much more. The stakes are very high. Greer suggests checking out battleforthenet.com to call on Biden to nominate another real public interest champion for the FCC. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. So here we are, 20 years after the U.S. war on Iraq. And to speak broadly... The popular understanding is that Iraq wasn't behind the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and that they didn't have weapons of mass destruction aimed at the U.S. 
weapons whose immediate threat, yes, was the vehemently argued premise for a grave assault on a sovereign country. But somehow in all of this talkity-talk, the idea of acknowledgement of wrong, forget compensation, forget apology, is nowhere in evidence. The story has been made over such that the Iraq invasion was wrong, but still okay. Iraqis were harmed, but still helped. And all the advisors and experts that got it very wrong are still somehow right. The 2003 war on Iraq is most importantly a story about imperialist violence. But it's also about the web of lies and disinformation used to advance it and the role that nominally independent journalists played and play. Norman Solomon has been thinking and working on these issues for decades. He's been part of FAIR since the start. He's co-founder of RootsAction.org and executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. His most recent book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, out soon from the new press. He joins us now by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome back to Counterspin, Norman Solomon. Thanks, Janine. Well, there are so many places we could start, but I did want to kind of stick a fork in one thing. Talking about media today at the 20-year mark, the theme is missed signals, miscalculation, misunderstanding. It's hard to talk about what happened and media's role without recognizing that the George W. Bush administration and its advisors wanted and intended to invade Iraq before the September 11th, 2001 attacks. But that's not a contention. That's just a thing we know based on evidence, right? Yes, Rumsfeld made a very clear statement in a memo uh, just in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that they were going after Iraq. It was uh, their eyes on the prize in a grotesque sort of a way. And when we look back 20 years, I think there's a consistent thread that the media and the government excuses are basically intertwined, which sort of makes sense since the disinformation messaging after 9-11, before, during, and after the invasion of Iraq, all that was also intertwined between government and uh, mass media. And we think of and sometimes notice the uh, revolving door of personnel where someone is a press secretary for the president then goes to a cable news network or vice versa. George Stepanopoulos and many others who followed him just had this career path that was basically recycling between those in government who often deceive and those in media who have a follow-up career and they're just in a different part of the deception chain, as it turns out. And so I think it's uh, fitting, unfortunately, that 20 years after so many of the government officials and media uh, mavens and so-called journalists, quite often not deserving the name, that they were basically singing out of the same hymn book, uh, and now they're sort of being exculpatory for each other and themselves, at the 20th anniversary, you know, one example that I think uh, is just uh, so uh, profoundly grotesque is that in the months before the invasion of Iraq, you had 
people who were recycling uh, falsehoods out of government sources or government-designated anointed sources into news media like Judith Miller and Michael Gordon onto the front pages of the New York Times. Then you would have uh, Dick Cheney, for instance, who would go on the Sunday talk shows knowing that his own office had funneled the disinformation into the New York Times. Then he would say, well, don't just believe us. This is being reported by the New York Times. Right. And, you know, a number of folks have written recently, John Schwartz at The Intercept, Derek Simon at Truth Out, also Marjorie Cohn, Adam Johnson at Real News, about how these visible architects of the Iraq war in government, but also in think tanks and then also in media, they've all failed upward subsequently, haven't they? You know, even what knowing what we know there's been like, you know, no, no, no comeuppance, no fallout for those folks. Well, that is something I think we could call a repetition compulsion disorder <laughs> that completely gets a uh, reward system to back it up. Uh, whereas those who uh, step out of line, who don't conflate being pro-war with being objective, they are not going to find upward mobility in media uh, anywhere near so smooth. And often they just hit a brick wall, you know, forget glass ceiling. They hit a brick wall above their heads. We have some examples that cry out for uh, remembering and uh, reminding people that Phil Donahue, who had the temerity to actually have a variety of voices about the wisdom of invading Iraq uh, in the months before in his primetime MSNBC program, we know because of a leaked memo that he was fired a few weeks before the invasion precisely because people at the top of management, MSNBC, NBC News, they were worried that, as they put it in this uh, for a while secret memo, that the flag wavers at Fox and CNN would make MSNBC look bad because Donahue was allowing some anti-war voices onto the air. And I know from having been reporting and visiting Iraq uh, before the invasion a few times and writing about this at the time, including for FAIR, that there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure going on from news media and to the extent there was an opening for debate, say, in the summer and early fall of 2002, the aperture continued to narrow. And so the more that a consensus uh, was being promoted and uh, forced, you might say, that a war and invasion was necessary, the less space there was. I know personally, because I was able to go to Iraq with some delegations, former senator and current member of Congress, and then with Sean Penn, and then with a UN official. I found in the late part of 2002, what was first a bit of an opening, where I would be invited onto CNN or MSNBC or even Fox, by the end of the autumn, that opening had pretty much closed, and certainly by the end of the year. And the explanation I was given was that in October of 2002, when the House and Senate voted that an invasion of Iraq would be authorized, that became sort of official policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the, the bookers and so forth at the cable news networks would say, well, you know, now this is the U.S. government's stance. 
that uh, an invasion uh, is in the cards. It's officially authorized by the legislative branch. So there's less controversy here. And so now we need to close up any window of debate in the public conversation because officials have decided what's going to happen. And I don't think that's maybe everybody's understanding of the way journalism works or should work. Yeah, it's a sort of a ersatz pseudo-journalism that sets the standard for professionalism. And we, I guess, ought to face it that when people move into the journalism profession, they're out of college or whatever, what defines professional standards? It's the ambience, the content, the style, the attitude that's inherent in what people who have already made it in the profession are doing every day. And so it's sort of an imitative quality that uh, defines what journalism, or at least what passes for journalism, is. And part of that is not really apologizing even later on. And I think this you know, gets to uh, what you were alluding to uh, at the outset of our discussion, Janine, that when there's an anniversary or a look back, there's really very little impetus for candor, least of all self-assessment or self-criticism, really, from these media institutions. And so even in some of the most conspicuous, egregious cases like the New York Times distortions and serving up just bogus stories, Washington Post as well, when they did sort of mea culpas many, many weeks later, they were sort of equivocal and they uh, avoided really uh, shedding harsh light on how it could be that these two purportedly most important high-quality media outlets in the United States of America basically served as conveyor belts for pro-war propaganda coming from the top of the U.S. government. I mean, to me, the fact that when you look at the architects and the folks who were most prominent in Um, mouthpiecing for this invasion, the fact that they are all still in high-paid and prominent positions, it underscores the fact that, you know, corporate media's debate, it has a patina of rationality and of debate, but it's really kind of just a club, right? There's just certain folks that they listen to and whose ideas they promote. And it doesn't matter if those folks are wrong or right, or if they're reliable or not, or if they're lying or ignorant, they're just on the list, you know, and then there are other people who are just not on the list, whether or not their predictions turn out to be right or whether or not they're reliable. And with Iraq, that was historians and regional specialists and human rights researchers. They're just never going to be led into the conversation, no matter how correct they were. There really are tacit media boundaries that I think are well understood, you know, however consciously or not. And when a misassessment was later shown to be egregiously wrong uh, with a war or peace at stake, there's later on a sense of a sort of a clean slate. Let's wipe the record clean Mm -hmm. because, well, we all make mistakes and so forth. And that goes to individuals and also to media organizations. And we like to think, well, or we might want to think, the ones that are really top quality, they will cop to their uh, mistakes, distortions, errors, even or especially when the errors were extremely important. Right. And yet 
that's not the case. I mean, one example, which at least has to do with history, and we're told that journalism is the first draft of history, okay, later on, there should be a better draft. Of course, one would hope that the first one uh, was accurate, given that that is the most important while these events are unfolding. So one example that comes to mind is the New York Times reported early on uh, in this whole uh, 20-year span that the invasion came after Saddam Hussein had kicked out UN weapons inspectors from uh, the country in 1998. So this was the New York Times telling all of its readers that, hey, those UN weapons inspectors were pulled out of the country several years before the invasion. They were kicked out. Saddam Hussein did not allow them to inspect anymore. And FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, made the clear and accurate point and mobilized some messaging to the New York Times that that's an interesting story, which happens to be false, <laughs> and that Saddam Hussein did not kick out the UN weapons inspectors in 1998. They were withdrawn by the United Nations because the government of, under that point, President Bill Clinton had made clear it was about to bomb Iraq and what became known as Operation Desert Fox. And so it was because the U.S. government announced essentially it was about to bomb the country that the U.N. thought it was prudent to save the lives, perhaps, of the U.N. inspectors to withdraw them. And so that was something that fair activists uh, were able to get the New York Times to publish a subsequent correction. Fast forward many years to the time of the 20th anniversary that we've just gone through, and the New York Times again publishes the falsehood that Saddam Hussein kicked out the weapons inspectors from the country in 1998, which sort of reminds me of something that George Orwell wrote in 1984, you know, those who control the present control the past, those who control the past control the future. And I think that's a good cautionary note to anybody who thinks, well, this is just history. Why talk about it now? Because all of this is prefigurative. It is actually reinforcing mindsets. These distortions are messaging to people subtly and not so subtly that at the end of the day, I think, as, as you put it uh, at the beginning of our discussion, Janine, the U.S. government can be wrong, but it's still okay. We can go into war and, okay, we made mistakes, et cetera, et cetera, which is easy for us to say while other people experience it with more suffering by far than those in the U.S., but it's still the pretense, subtly or not, is it's okay because we mean well. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a short story written 100 years ago called Aditha, and there's a character in it, and this is in about 1905 when it's published, which is in the aftermath, really, of the U.S. slaughter of uh, people in the Philippines. And there's a character who says, what a wonderful thing it is to live in a country that might be wrong, but when it's wrong, is right anyway. And that's the, the water that elite news media carry. And to folks who could think smarter, you know, to, to a population that could handle reality and, you know, react accordingly. And I, and I guess that's 
what makes me so angry is that people pick up the paper thinking that they're being addressed as an intelligent person who's trying to make decisions about what they support and what they don't support. And it's just not what they're getting, you know? It's not what they're getting. And there, and there are a few things that stand out to me, Norman, because I, I know that some of Counterspin listeners weren't born in 2003, and so they've only, they've only heard the remix, as it were. But there are things that stand out for those of us who were there, and one of them is a massive demonstration in New York with thousands of other people who were opposing an imminent invasion of Iraq, who were pulled out of their apartments, people who don't usually go out in the street, who don't usually demonstrate. But we were very aware that this was a war that was going to be called in our name specifically, you know, like, look at what happened to New York on September 11th, and it was supposed to be in our name. And as I've said many times before, the most prominent message here in New York City was our grief is not a cry for war. And the desire to not turn the horror and loss of September 11th into more horror and loss for other people. And what I remember was coming home from this massive demonstration and reading the New York Times saying, well, you know, not a lot of people showed up. It wasn't as many people as organizers thought. And so wrong, so wrong that the Times had to go back and re-report the story later. And so I guess what I'm trying to just get at is that the erasing and the denigrating of anti-war voices was key in 2003 and it's key in 2023. Well, absolutely. It's the erasure of those who are either suffering under the U.S. bombs, erasure from media coverage of substance and let alone empathy, and also erasure, as you say, of anti-war voices in our own communities and the United States and the tremendous quantity, really, and depth of anti-war feeling and understanding, it is infuriating. It should be infuriating. And often when I read even the best, uh, what we're told are the best uh, mass media outlets in the United States, it seems that there's a effort in effect to infantilize the readers mm-hmm. to um, almost like what was in school called the weekly reader, where things were really, if not dumbed down, it just simplified. And the the lens on the world, the window on the world is so tinted, right, white, and blue, we're being uh, assumed to be either naive, gullible, or simply blindly what passes for patriotic. And the staying power of people who are in the upper reaches of editorial decision-making is really quite stunning. It's hard to think of anyone who was in a major position 20 years ago propagating and fomenting and spreading the lies to grease the path, the skids for the war on Iraq. It's hard to think of many who suffered at all from their careers. They simply uh, did fine. The ones who did all that just went right along, often rising uh, into the profession, upper reaches. And I think, for instance, of David Remnick, who was already the editor of the New Yorker magazine uh, during the lead-up to the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. And he wrote a de facto editorial calling for the invasion of Iraq. It was quite vehement, uh, and that was a couple of months before the invasion. But even worse, under his editorial leadership, 
David Remnick ran a magazine, The New Yorker, that published one article after another that was absolute distortion, claiming without any evidence, and it certainly turned out to be false, asserting that Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi government had ties to al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. had ties to what happened during 9-11. These were very powerful messages, and many people naively, gullibly assumed, well, it's in the New York Times, or it's in uh, the New Yorker, or it's in the Washington Post, that these kind of stories were true or right. had credibility. In fact, they were disinformation of the most uh, dangerous and ultimately destructive kind. Well, and, and, and finally, and following from that, it's, a, it's work, you know, isn't it, to resist the, the confusion and the cognitive dissonance that elite media enforce for a person who's just trying to inform themselves about the world. You know, the messages you get, sovereignty matters, except when we say it doesn't. Uh, invasion is horrific, except when we do it. You know, look how they oppress their own people. That's reason enough to force regime change. Oh, but don't talk about that in the U.S., you know, you freaking commie. You know, like, forget your political stance. It just breaks your brain to try to pretend to follow elite media's what they call rationality. And it, and I guess above all, it makes you feel confused and alone. And what I want to ask you is, what do you see as the antidotes to that? Where do you see the place for folks to go who recognize how brain-breaking and how wrong this is? I think that, uh, and as you say, the effort is so important because if we're simply passive and let it wash over us, Mm -mm. that's not going to work. I think recognizing that the essence of propaganda is repetition and that if we are are immersed in this uh, constant waterfall, this flood of corporate-driven media coverage and what passes for analysis and so forth, that we're in the deluge and that we need to you know, swim, so to speak, in a very different direction. And that includes, of course, um, I don't mean this as a cliche, thinking for ourselves Mm -hmm. and also availing ourselves and supporting media outlets that are very much willing to swim upstream to challenge the conventional media wisdom that is so driven by, among other things, the military-industrial complex and corporate power. And so that should mean including supporting FAIR, subscribing to the newsletter Extra, going to FAIR.org, supporting Counterspin, going to outlets like Truthout and Common Dreams and Intercept and elsewhere, Democracy Now! These are very important outlets because if we don't sustain them, we will simply be overwhelmed by the disinformation machines. We've been speaking with longtime FAIR associate Norman Solomon of RootsAction.org and the Institute for Public Accuracy. His latest book, War Made Invisible, will be out soon from the new press. Thank you so much, Norman Solomon, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks a lot, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information about FAIR, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.